Hello and welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? I'm Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. The vision was stronger than the fear and it just kept going and I started redeeming our communities in 2004. We launched it at the Reebok Stadium in Bolton and we had, you know, 1,500 people turn up. Today I'm talking to Deborah Green, who is the founder and executive director of Redeeming Our Communities, a national charity that brings about community transformation by creating strategic partnerships. These open up opportunities for crime and disorder reduction and improved community cohesion. Deborah received an OBE in 2012 in recognition of services to community cohesion. She lives in South Manchester with her husband Frank and has four grown up children. Welcome, Deborah, and thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Deborah, you, you grew up in Manchester and spent some time down south in Bromley in Kent and then came back up to Manchester. Tell us a little bit about the, the younger Deborah. What was she like at school? Well, I was um, very outgoing, probably still am, not in a sporty kind of way, but socialising and being out with people and having fun and I remember having uh, a lot of friends I think I think um, I think I was a little bit bossy I my mum tells me a story of how she'd come into my bedroom and I'd have all my dolls lined up and I would be teaching them or preaching to them or telling them about something that they needed to so I, I think I, I wanted to have some kind of platform from a a young age sort of a bit of a campaigner in me I suppose I enjoyed school. I had lots of friends. Um, I had positive experience at school. When I got to my teens, um, I started to focus probably more on um, people of the opposite sex <laughs> rather than, uh, or the length of my skirt, which I used to roll <laughs> over at the waist and um, sort of getting involved with you know, boys and looking at that whole side of romance and everything like that and got a little bit distracted. In fact, my teacher said, you're not really going to, you're too distracted and you're not really going to do well in your exams. Mm. And I think that's what pushed me into going to onto higher education. Was it? Because it sounds like you wanted a stage because you did English and drama at Manchester Met. <laughs> Was that what attracted you to that? I think initially it was one of those things where I was just um, wanting to prove the teachers wrong. Oh, right, yeah. yeah <laughs> so they're yeah. telling me that I'm not going to do very well. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go and do some higher education. But yeah, I, I, I was always involved in amateur dramatics as a young oh, yeah. person. I was in quite a few theatre companies, amateur theatre companies like the Garrick in Altrincham. I was in about probably 20 or 30 plays uh, where learning a script and acting a part. Um, so yeah, those, those were things that I was really passionate about. And then I suppose wanting to teach other people, I suppose it's standing in front of people and, and wanting to just pass that, up, pass that knowledge on. Yeah, so, so you went to university and, and how do you think you changed at university? Did it sort of confirm that sort of part of you 
wanted to be in front of people and on the stage and teaching or whatever or, or did you learn other things about yourself during that time yeah I think it did confirm it I think there was part of me which was um, fulfilled in in teaching another part of me I think that didn't want to be restricted into any one particular subject so I think mm. in the early days there I was learning that I wanted to communicate a message, but not necessarily the same message all the time. Um, I, I wanted to, to communicate something that I felt passionate about. Yes. Um, I remember going into Stockport Town Centre as a young person and just setting up a box and just standing there and telling people something is probably, a lot of it was probably just rubbish, but I was just, <laughs> just passionate to share that, you know, how idealistic we can be. Um, yes. And, yes. you know, there's just a passion there wanting to yes. spill out. So I, th I think it needed refining, but yeah, I always right. have that. So if the crowd didn't come to you, you would go to the crowd. Yes, <laughs> and I have to have a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so then you finished at university and you went to work in sales. Tell us why why sales, and then tell us a little bit about what was your first day like. It's it sales, I think. Again, you 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 are getting in front of people with a message, aren't you? And yeah. I suppose I suppose the main motivation was to try and earn some money, really, because yeah. I've been a student, yes. and I have done you know, wanted to get my own home and wanted to sort of start out in life and. I was quite good at persuading people to buy things. Right. And um, so I, I actually earned more money in that those few months that I was in direct selling than I than I do now. You know, mm. I earned a lot of money. I was able to go into people's mm. homes and sell them double glazing for a while, and then I was selling um, Electrosave. It was called, which helped you to reduce your um, utility bills. But I was just selling anything. I think I was just wanting. I didn't really have much of a principle uh, around it. Around is, is this product actually good for people? It was just. It was just the, the sales. You know, manager told you to sell it, and you sold it, and, and I earned money. So that was. It only lasted for about a year or so. That phase of my life, and then, um, and then I got my first teaching job. And, and when you went into that, um, did you suffer from nerves at all? I mean, often when people are, you know, calling on, you know, others or they're on the stage, you know, with a crowd or, or that, a big barrier is the sort of nerves of doing that and the anticipation and so on. Did, have you ever found that yourself or, or not? I was talking to one of my kids about this the other day who suffers yeah. a little bit from nerves and, and yeah. they were really surprised when I said, I, I do too, mm. because I don't think people think that about me when they hear me speak. Mm. And I, I definitely suffer from nerves. Um, I think depending on the context, if, yes. if I feel really confident in the message that I've prepared or somehow I'm relaxed in some way, I'm not yeah. quite so nervous, but I've been through bouts of being really nervous. Yeah. 
and uh, I remember being the victim of, of a prank actually in, in my first teaching job where oh. I was in the sports hall with all the young people supervising PE which isn't my subject at all and I don't know right. anything about it but I, they just put me in there to sort of crowd control yeah. and um, at the end of the lesson the kids are supposed to let the teacher go out first and go through the changing rooms so mm. they played a prank on me and they all went into the changing rooms leaving me stuck in the hall and not able to get out of the hall <laughs> because otherwise I would have had to have gone through the male changing rooms oh, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was things like that you know oh, where I, I had to learn um some common sense and what what kids what kids can do to you when you're a new recruit teacher oh gosh yeah so tell us a little bit more about the teaching what what were you teaching and where was that well, often I was doing supply teaching right. uh, for quite a long period of time because mm. it was it was in the eighties and some it was quite difficult to get a job, mm. and so I was doing quite a lot of supply teaching, and that suited me really well because I had different experiences in different schools yes. and um, kept me engaged and not bored, you know, to be in one scenario all the time. So doing doing a lot of supply teaching. Um, and then um, really I was starting to sort of assess really, I suppose, I don't know whether I was doing it consciously, but assess, is this something that I'm always going to do? Is this, because I'd wanted to be a teacher from a young person, yes. a young child really, it was yeah. the only job I'd really thought I wanted to do. So mm. I, I suppose I was working out, is this, is this what I'm always going to do? And then around that time, sort of started a family. And that's right. I think then things began, began to change quite a bit after that. Yes, yes. Because then you took out some time, didn't you, for, for your family? Yes. Uh, and, and to put time into them as they were growing up. Did you find that a sort of easy transition? Or was it hard to sort of give up your sort of work life at all? Yeah, because I was only 24 um, when um, my first child was born, um, which is quite young when you think about it now. Yeah. Um, and I think I wanted to really get going in terms of career. I think I was quite mm. ambitious. Mm. Um, so I, do, I don't think I was a natural stay-at-home mum. I don't think I had, um, you know, I don't really think I had the same kind of, uh, I, I, I don't think I was like my mum really my mum was right. always an, an at-home mum and always seemed to feel completely fulfilled in that role which I think yeah. is brilliant but yeah. I think I was a little bit different yes. everybody's experience is different isn't it so I think the happy medium for me came around working part-time right. so we even yeah. when the kids were little I was working part-time mm -hmm. so I had a little bit of an outlet to then come back into the home Right. and be be positive about that experience as well rather than frustrated yes. so yeah it was a little bit of a mix of both that gave you a balance didn't it by the same yes thing, yes yes and what were the sort of part-time things you were doing because you you linked into the uh the network evangelical alliance in manchester was that part of that yes so yeah. around that time um i got involved with um, the Evangelical Alliance in Manchester, which was a network of churches across the city. Yes. Um, and um, I started to discover really, I suppose, right back then, my passion for being involved in charity work. Mm. And 
the whole idea of getting people together with a particular focus and purpose. Mm. And in the early days, it was around getting people to come together to pray. And I started something called Prayer Network, which lasted for about eight years, actually. And it was Mm. started with about 60 people in a room and ended up with thousands coming together over over 200 different denominations and streams. Mm. But it was very much prayer with an outward focus, praying for things like healthcare, uh, police, law and order, which is how I got involved with the police. in terms of what I do now, um, mm. prayer for business, praying for media, praying for education, and what are some of the pressures on teachers and mm. um, colleges and universities, and how can we understand their world and yes. and all of that kind of thing. So I think that was the big turning point for me, where I, not that I didn't want to teach anymore in a school, but I, fe- I felt like a new vista had opened up for me, which was more... Uh, fitting to to what to my sort of dna really yes yeah and it sort of brought your your sort of faith and that outward looking thing together but also i guess you understood what it was like to be a teacher as well you know right in the classroom yes absolutely impacted all of that together i guess Mm, yes yeah yeah well they only only became a person of faith in 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 1980 which was the year that i got married so i hadn't necessarily had that in my growing up years but finding that faith and wanting to make faith um a thing which could contribute towards society well-being rather than it um, yes. being just about the words and preaching as such yes. it was more about how do we live our lives and can we make a positive contribution to society yes so it's not just something for a sunday but it's something for you wherever you are and whatever you do yes and people see by example um, yeah. hopefully by example of the way that um you live your life that mm. um you if you care for people you have to show that in some practical ways if you if you say that there is a a god who cares for people then we have to show that in practical ways of uh, listening and of of understanding people's circumstances that's right absolutely and we'll we'll come on to sort of you know redeeming our communities uh in a bit um but you then sort of joined the staff at ivy church where we, we we both sort of worked together a little bit didn't we yeah, uh, on the leadership and things like that. Tell me about that sort of time and um, what did uh, what did you learn about yourself and what sort of things were you getting involved in? Well, it's quite interesting, really, because the church really had had um, a, a history of all of of all male leadership, mm-hmm. which some people might find a bit strange because the whole uh, the whole sort of climate has changed oh, around yeah. that. But when I was first a Christian it was quite unusual to have women in leadership in in a church context uh, for lots of different reasons and um i i was actually the first female elder as such or lead in leadership role and we have some uh, different ways of explaining that in church don't we but i was the first one and that that was both a really exciting opportunity that opened up for me but also Mm. quite um a challenge as well because you have this 
fight going on within you, I suppose, about not wanting to push yourself forwards into something and being the first one. Are you going to fail? What is it going to look like? What's people going to think about you and all of that? Um, But but almost somebody had to do it and people were quite fearful about putting themselves forward because it was something that hadn't been done before. So that was all part of my early experience Mm -hmm. of being in church leadership and people just welcomed me and received me really well. And I think it was a really positive experience, but you're also a bit nervous when you do something new for the first time. Yeah, I was going to say, did, did did it put you under stress uh, you know the sort of pressure to perform and things or um and well i suppose so i think it's because you don't always have a lot all the self belief no. that you you need to have when you're a younger person you yes. you might you might doubt have you got gifts and skills that are going to be useful in that environment and um, are you going to be with others who uh, you feel a little bit intimidated by I don't know because they might have more experience or yeah. more education and we, we compare ourselves all the time I think we, we do. all do it but it was it was just the feeling of 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 being I suppose you could use the word called um, yes. there's yeah. a feeling of being um, compelled to do it yes. was was stronger than the fear. So I, I, I oh. thought I've got to push myself into out of my comfort zone and yes. beyond my fear into this because there was a sense in which it was something that I was meant to do. Mm. That's that's really powerful, isn't it? Because that that fear and anticipation and worry that we have about things and whether we're we're equipped to do them, whether we're doing the right thing and all of that, it can, it can really hold, hold you back, can't it? But pushing mm. through that, recognizing mm. it and getting beyond that, you actually, you actually grow yourself and, and, and understand yes. what you can, what you are capable of doing. And um, yes. that leads to other things. Absolutely. And I think there are a number of times that that happens in a person's life where you push through that pain barrier and you find yourself on the other side, having grown, having learned, having possibly some scars, <laughs> you know, because you, yeah. when you do new things, it doesn't always, you don't always come through unscathed, but mm-hmm. you, you, you grow through it, you learn through it. And I think it made me more, um, I think it helped me to understand the process of leadership being a responsibility really? and not not um not something that is is a title if you yes. like you know because yeah. once you enter into any kind of leadership role you have to exercise wisdom and you mm. you are responsible because other people are looking to you and it's it's a it's quite a an interesting mm. you know place to be isn't it and so you have to walk carefully with it you do you do so if there was somebody listening to this who was in that sort of situation where they felt they needed to take a step but but they had that sort of fear feeling what do you think your advice to them would be how would you suggest they work through that yeah, I, I, I think I, you think you need to think in your head almost what is the worst thing that can happen. Yes. Um, and, and, and play out each one of those scenarios. Will you say something foolish 
Will people laugh? Will your message be rejected? Yeah. Uh, what will people think of you? And how mm. will you cope with that? You've almost got to try not to take yourself too seriously mm-hmm. to, to not allow that to, to stop you from doing something which could be a really good learning curve for you. Yeah. And what is the worst thing that can happen? You could say something silly and I've done it hundreds of times and then I just say and then I just say something like oh I just said something really silly there yeah. and, and and almost laugh at myself and say why did I why did I do that I got that or I got that wrong I'm yeah. sorry I got that wrong and people always accept it you know very rarely do people say well we don't want to work with you anymore because <laughs> you made a mistake and I think you have to work through what is the worst that can happen yeah, that's great advice, isn't it? And also that sort of vulnerability around, look, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. I'll learn, you know, you learn. That's how you learn, isn't it, as well? So, yes. So that's really good. So then um, you set up the, the charity Redeeming Our Communities in 2004. What, what was your thinking and your motivation for doing that? Because that seems like quite a step to do something like that. Yes, well, um, we'd done the we'd done all kind of all those years of prayer, and one of the things yeah. that had introduced me to was working with Greater Manchester Police, which I didn't right. think I ever would be working with the police. And what that did was it kind of moved from prayer mm. into a, into action, and into saying what can churches, if you like, and Christian-based organisations yeah. do in partnership with these statutory bodies, these public services, mm. to say, well, we all want safer kind of communities. We all want um, to reduce crime. We all want safety for our elderly folks, safety for our young people, yes. less drugs and all of this kind of thing. Yes. So there was a common ground. And so it moved from prayer to action. And then it, it, it kind of moved into... Um, the idea or the notion of setting up a charity which was suggested to me by two or three other people and my again reaction was I don't know how to set up a charity you know I've got no experience in setting up a charity what does that even look like Mm. and of course people come along to help you and you have to have trustees and you you go to the charity commission and you register and all of that so that all of that was a big learning curve as well but again the sort of the vision was stronger than the fear and it just kept, it? kept going and yeah. I started redeeming our communities in 2004 we launched it at the Reebok Stadium in Bolton uh, because yeah. we wanted to sort of uh, go for Liverpool and Manchester to come together okay. and it was a little bit halfway yes and we had you know 1500 people turn up and we invited people yeah. like Hazel Blears who was yes. in the home office at the time and she accepted the invitation and we had the CEO of Sefton Council, we had mm. uh, the, you know, the chief constables and people like that come along and it really, it really shocked me. But I think there was an appetite for people to work together because no one organisation can really transform a community. It was the idea of if we all come together, pool our resources, there's going to be you know, yes. reduction in crime and safer kind of, you know, streets. And we, right. launched, we launched street pastors at that, which was quite a new thing at the time. Mm. It, was just, it, it just really opened up a whole new vista. And then someone said, this is going to go national. 
and ours, ours sort of, oh, no, 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 you know, Manchester's mm -hmm. big enough. You know, we can't do anything national. And two years later, it went national at the mm -hmm. NEC in Birmingham. So wow. it just it almost had a life of its own and people came on board with different skills and gifts to myself. That's the other thing, teamwork. You right, know, we don't, yes. we don't work on our own. Others will be inspired by the vision. They'll get on board and they've got different skills and gifts to you. So, yes, you know, yes. that's how you're able to do things that are probably beyond your yeah. remit. <laughs> and how did you find, because it sort of sounds like it was all, it was like an idea um, that came along at the right time and just it sort of caught the imagination and the mood, both of people in church and also, as you say, people in those statutory bodies and coming together of two very different sort of communities i guess and types of people and yet around a common cause mm. have you found sort of running along with that snowball as, as it sort of grew did you find people came at the right time or you know it must have pulled you outside your comfort zone again and again i imagine yes it did um because once you then went national um, and yeah. there was so many people wanting to be involved that was 2006 and then as the country started to experience austerity there yes. was even more of a need because a lot of the services were being cut mm -hmm. and we launched these after-school youth clubs for young people where the police would come along and yeah. play pool and you know wow. table tennis and that was a positive role model to the young people on uh, somebody wearing a uniform mm. and that all started to grow and it, I think it was just in its moment mm. and as services were being cut the voluntary sector as it were including the churches were able to step up and yeah. um, then you had you know things like cat the debt counseling agency you know yes. things like trussell trust and street pastors and lots of organizations being recognized for their contribution to the economy and contribution right. to society Yes. Because um, yes. the voluntary effort is, when it was last estimated a few years ago, is worth £3 billion uh, to the national economy. Wow. Yeah. Um, that was just the people who were surveyed about how they put their faith into action, as it were. Mm. And so I think there was just that, yes, it was a timing and it did teach me a lot. And I think you're right, people came along at the right time. Yes. I met a, I met a chief constable called um, Matt Baggett, who's now Sir Matt Baggett, who was the chief constable over in Leicester. Mm. And he, that we worked together at the NEC, and then he went on to be the chief constable at Police Service of Northern Ireland, which then opened us up to launch there um, right. in 2012. And so it's almost like the people that you meet along the way, and I found this over and over again, it's good to really invest in those relationships because those are people who you might be working with in the future yes. in, a, in a different context. That's right. It's always good to look. I think the, the, the technical way of explaining it in, um, I think it's Robert Maxwell talks about the win-win. Right. Um, about every, every um, relationship that you have, looking for... The win for the other person and not not just for yourself yes and i think that is a huge lesson because you can you can almost belittle a relationship or 
feel like you're not getting very much out of it as it were it's the wrong way of looking at it because yes. those people could be part of the future it's good just to see how it can be a, yes. a good thing for them and how you can promote them as it were and give them opportunity even if there's nothing in it for you personally i think right. that's a big a big thing that i would say as a young person you need to yes. have that as a real guiding principle it's a really positive thing isn't it to think about the other person and not just yourself and to see uh, how what you do can effectively help them in in their journey and in, in what they've got to deliver as well because we've all got that that sort of need to you know want to have a positive impact um, mm. and actually seeing that in other people can actually change how you approach you know your role can't it yeah and i've got young people coming to me at the moment who over the last few years who've wanted to set up charities for example mm. and come along and said deborah how do you do this how do you how do you actually set up a charity and can you give me advice and Yes. You find yourself sharing advice with them, probably from your own experience, and it they, is. and you don't really feel these are particularly impressive examples, but the other person does because they haven't been along this route. So, I've had dozens of people come along and help them, help them to set up their charity and uh -huh. give them advice, and especially quite a lot of uh, younger women who may have had the same kind of feelings of fear yeah, that I've had. Absolutely. How do you do this? How do you navigate this? And mm -hmm. it's just been really exciting to see those charities now really take off. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? So I was just picturing. So what if you, if the young Deborah came to you for a bit of advice, the Deborah before she went off to do uh, English and drama at Manchester Met, what what one piece of advice do you think you'd give her? To be open-minded that what you feel that you might always be doing in life is not necessarily what you will do. I know some people stay in the same career mm. path all the way through their journey, mm. which, is, which is also really good. But there are times where that pathway changes direction mm. and to, to, to be open to that change of direction, if that's for you. And almost not to be concerned about leaving some things behind when you are going on that change of direction because the, there's an exciting future ahead. And yeah. sometimes you, you know, I might have said to myself, you're going to have seasons where you feel as though everything has gone wrong, as it were, or everything has come to a halt. And then then within that season, something new emerges, some conversation sparks your interest and you find yourself going on a, a, a different journey. And you might have several of those seasons. So that's probably would have warned myself about that. <laughs> it's a little bit like, you know, when you laying hold of something new, sometimes you need to let go of other things because you've only got two hands at the end of the day, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Brilliant. Look, Deborah, that's been really fascinating. Thanks so much for your time today to chat to us. Really appreciate it. Thank you.